Is it time for Democrats and the Biden White House to boycott all of Fox News? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. There is a growing debate among several Democratic officials and staff about whether or not it's still safe to go even on the Fox News, what they call the straight news programming, like Dayside and Fox News Sunday. Although I would argue that those are still just as part of just as much as part of the GOP apparatus as some of their primetime programming. But the debate is raging, and here to talk about it is Angelo Caruson. He is the president and CEO of Media Matters. A group that watches Fox News, so the rest of us do not have to. Uh, Angelo, um, there's been this debate over the last couple of days, in part because Pete Buttigieg went on Fox News Sunday, the transportation secretary. He said something that was very reasonable. It was taken totally out of context on Laura Ingram's show to suggest that he somehow embraced violence. Explain yeah. what happened. Yeah, and basically, he gave an answer. The question was about protesting, you know, outside restaurants, you know, for the Supreme Court justices, and you know, he gave basically a reasonable answer, which is that, you know, obviously violence is not acceptable, but if you're a public official, you should expect it. And he sort of, you know, he personalized it, and it was it was a perfectly reasonable, effective answer. The way that it was framed on the rest of Fox News was, you know, and I think Laura Ingram really encapsulated it well, is that. Uh, instead of replaying his answer or even characterizing it correctly, uh, all she did was play B-roll of him talking in the background, which is just sort of him, you know, giving the answer, but no sound. And instead, she said, "People to judge endorses violence," um, and that's not remotely even close to what the answer was. And I think that's what ignited it because there was these two realities really happening in, 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 in incredibly at the same time, which is that the next day. Twitter and you know Democratic circles are just sharing the video and they're just saying like this is how you do it, this is how you beat Fox and you go on there and you give a really good answer, uh, and yet totally disconnected and divorced from what was actually happening on Fox News, which is that yeah they were talking about Pete Buttigieg a lot that day, but instead of giving him credit or accolades or even just giving him the space to repeat the answer that he gave, um, all they did was bash him and mischaracterize him and lie about it uh, in order to serve their agenda. Full disclosure, I was at Fox News for the start for the first five and a half years. And back when I was there, and I left more than 20 years ago, if I did a piece or report and one of the primetime shows, one of the opinion shows took something out of context, even my reporting, very nuanced reporting, I had an avenue to go to the bureau chief and have them, the president of Fox News, come down hard on Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity and make sure that didn't happen again. It seems like that has just been thrown out the window because now there's so much that happens on the so-called day side straight news program or Fox News Sunday where there's nothing that they can do to try to stop what primetime Tucker, Laura and the rest do with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what the, I think you hit it exactly right, which is that sometimes people will sort of misunderstand that it's not because Fox has a perspective or even a bias or even has these, you know, sort of opinion talkers that have obviously a really strong bent. Something happened at Fox and it happened a while ago, but it's only gotten worse. There is no separation or distinction between their news side and their so-called opinion side. They function as one and the same. Um, the news side, that at least what they would define as the news side, does not adhere to any journalistic standards. And if people want a really clear illustration of that, um, it was really in the feud a couple of years back between Shepard Smith, who was on their news side, and Tucker Carlson. Um, and he was correcting what was happening, and you know, obviously primetime was was lying a bunch. Shep was trying to correct some of that misinformation. Uh, he got attacked by primetime for that. And instead of you know, sort of the news side saying, hey, we, you know, he's, he's a truth teller, they pushed it up. Um, and, and that was, I think, the, the last moment, the last straw. It, it, I don't think you can argue that they have a news side after that. And you know, even during the daytime, they often cover what happens on primetime. But that's the rationale that people have had up until this point is that, well, I'm not going on the opinion side, which lies, I'm going on their so-called news division. But 
there really isn't a separation anymore. And, and that is a very important factor here because the reality is Fox functions much more, not just like a political operation, but they're an extremist group right now. I mean, Tucker Carlson is a, a fairly aggressive and a white supremacist. Um, you know, Democrats will attack Fox as a white supremacist network, um, and yet at the same time, uh, they won't follow through it. If something's really a white supremacist network, how do you justify and rationalize going on? And I, I just, there's such this incredible disconnect between their behavior, their conduct and their words. The words of their chief Washington correspondent or anchor are held out by Fox as, oh, Brett Baer is an example that we have straight news. First of all, I know Brett Baer, he is nothing like Shepard Smith. And while Shepard Smith, of course, would complain publicly on the air to correct the record, Brett Baer never does so. And there's some suggestion that he never even really rocks the boat internally. Yet there's this belief among Democrats, well, Brett Baer's 6 p.m. show or when he's on Fox News Sunday, we can get a fair yeah. shake from him and there's a big audience, so why not go and do it? Yeah, they are. This is what happens. There is a small group. Of, there's also look. There's a group of desperate Democrats, right, that think if they go on Fox News and they give a really good answer, uh, they'll get tons of credit and accolades. And so they do it because they think it's like a great shot. There's also like this consultant class, which there's a group of consultants that literally have a cottage industry that sort of promote this idea that going on Fox is somehow going to win you elections and, and primaries, and that's just never been proven true. Um, but the other part is that they just don't actually look at the evidence. Um, to your point about Brett Baer, you know, during the debates, he was an anchor uh, for Fox's debates, supposedly. Um, he promoted the idea that Joe Biden was wearing a secret earpiece that allowed somebody off stage to be controlling what he was saying on, on stage. Does that sound like something a news anchor says? Promoting some fever swamp right wing conspiracy? Of course not, right? And uh, if you fast forward to most recently around January 6th, it was Tucker Carlson that was on air the night of the first primetime January 6th hearing, not Brett Baer. They had sidelined Brett Baer to Fox Business, and of which of course they didn't promote. Uh, and that's because they're not a real news operation. So I and I know people point to these small examples, but that really separates out what Fox functions like as a whole. And it ignores their own harm because I've been in the room with executives, advertising executives, corporate executives. And one of the things that I think Democrats often miss is that you know, there will be advertisers, major media buyers making decisions about ads, where they're gonna place them. And coming up, we're gonna be dealing with cable companies that are making these calls. And one of the things Fox News does is say, well, if we were so controversial and we were so bad, then why, why do Democrats come on, right? Because they know that our audience is so powerful, they can't ignore us. And what they often say to advertisers that are skittish is, well, then just do what the Democrats do. You don't have to advertise on our primetime, just buy on the rest of Fox News. If they say it's okay, then it's gotta be okay for you. And so in a way, they actually validate some of Fox News's marketing that actually helps enable Fox to do the kinds of things that it does day to day. And that's that's obviously lie and create all kinds of damage and chaos. And another reason why I think that Fox News is part of the mainstream media sort of establishment and hasn't been kicked out is because 20 years ago, they were made a member of the White House pool. And for people who are yes. not familiar with that, oh. it's a rotation so that the broadcast networks, the wires and newspapers, they rotate who gets to go into the Oval Office because there's not room for everybody who travels on Air Force One. And then the material is shared with everybody else because it's extremely prestigious to be part of the pool. Fox News has also gotten a front row seat in the briefing room. And I argued years ago when Ed Henry, who was in charge, he was at CNN at the time, and he was saying, oh yeah, Fox News should be have a seat in the front row, they're part of the pool. I said, no, they shouldn't. And Ed at the time, unbeknownst to a lot of people, was negotiating with Fox News. So he was essentially greasing his wheels to go there. But because Fox News is now part of this press pool, because they share that material with everybody else, somehow the Washington media thinks, oh no, they're different from OAN, they're different from Newsmax. 
Right, oh God, I'm so glad you said that. Cause like that's always feels too wonky whenever I bring it up. But I think you hit it the nail on the head there. And I always give skeptics a thought experiment, which is that if a brand new operation started tomorrow called like Rox News or whatever, um, and they did exactly the same thing that Fox News does, nobody would go on it because it would be considered too controversial, right? It would be considered too fringy, too far out there. Even if it had 5 million viewers, they would say it's too extreme. Um, and that's the that's the point. The point is is that because they've gotten sort of this pass, uh, especially because they reached that that va- that sort of vaunted status of getting in the in the pool, um, they they just they get it they get a pass, and that's nonsense, right? It should be reevaluated. No other mechanism that does what Fox News does would be in the position that they are in, um, and being able to operate with impunity from all the places that help continue to prop them up. And the, the press corps is a big part of this. And I, I realize that it's like, it's very challenging, right? Cuz it seems like you're attacking them because they're conservatives. I don't have a problem with bias. I think that's something you can argue with and disagree with. I mean, news outlets have a perspective. That's what, especially when it comes to their editorial side, but journalists should adhere to some set of standards. And when you recklessly lie, um, the way that Fox News does both on their day side and their night side. And we do a lot of these studies and the studies always bear the same result, which is that their news, their supposed news programming repeats the same misinformation on their primetime programming at almost the exact same amount. It's just not as crazy sounding or it's not coming from the most well-known figures. So it doesn't feel as bad, but the data supports the idea that there is no distinction in terms of the quality of the programming or journalistic standards between their daytime and their nighttime. And as evidence of that, I think if they were trying to apply for a press pass right now, the Senate press credentials or some of these others, they would have a really difficult time uh, if they were a brand new outlet or if they had well, to go through I, I this agree. process. And again. I agree, there's no distinction between primetime and Fox News. It's one thing though not to go on Fox News, it's another to say, okay, we're now taking away your first girl seat, we're now kicking you out of the pool. I wish. I think it should be done, but does that responsibility lie with the association, the White House Correspondents Association, which decides these things, or does it lie with the Biden White House to say, no, we're not gonna have you more briefings? as long as Fox News is there in the first row? It's a little bit of both. Um, there is a, there. It's, it's sort of a give and take. You know, If they push too hard, the, the industry will naturally defend itself. Um, we saw a little bit of that early on, even when President Obama had issued a critique of Fox News back in 2009. He suggested that Fox News was a little too biased and the press corps, as you pointed out, sort of like just they just they serve they came all around Fox and fully defended them and attacked the administration. There is a role though that the administration will have in this, which is that they don't have to call on Fox. Um, they they don't have to play ball in the same way that they do right now. They can diminish the stature of Fox News in their interactions, which in turn creates the space and the pressure for the pool. And they can be much more resistant and vocal about the press pool, and they should. Um, they absolutely should. They should. They, there's no rational reason for Fox News to be a part of the press school. You can't make the case. We're watching this play out with the hearings. They they were participants in this insurrection. They helped organize it. They were helping engage with it. Like it's just, I I find it so dramatically inconsistent for the news media to be reporting on the January 6th committee, what happened, for there to be days where we're talking about text messages between Fox officials, the inconsistency with their programming, the way that they were in cahoots with Trump at the time and all these other extremists. And then for us to be getting press pool reports from Fox News figures as if they're not a part of (laughs) what is something that just led an attack on the country. So it's this very weird balance and it's partly why people get frustrated with DC because there's obviously personal relationships and a lot of inertia, but the White House has a role in that and they should press it. Agreed, Angelo Carusone, he's the president and CEO of Media Matters. Angelo, thanks for doing this, we appreciate it. Thank you.
Welcome back to the conversation, everybody. I'm David Schuster. If you love podcasts, well, I've got a great one for you for this summer, summer of 2022. It's a brand new one by somebody who's been doing podcasts for a while now successfully, and it's all about crime. Some of us love these crime podcasts. Well, this one is how the mob came to run a small Midwestern city. The name of the podcast is Crooked City, Youngstown, Ohio. It's by Mark Smurling, who is a filmmaker and host on the podcast. Some people may remember him from Crime Town, another series of podcasts he started oh, about uh, seven, eight years ago, uh, which focused on Detroit, Michigan and Providence, Rhode Island. Mark, good to have you on the program. First, um, why Youngstown, Ohio? When we were uh, looking for the title Crime Town, um, we came up, Alex Bloomberg came up with that name and I Googled it to see, you know, if there's anything else out there. And there's a David Grand article in the New Republic about Youngstown, Ohio. And it was all about, you know, what this story is about. And I was reading it and I'm like, wow, we should be doing Youngstown. So it was always sort of the plan to do Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, we just didn't get there in that in that show. Now, Youngstown, Ohio, a place that once was a vibrant city because of all the steel production, the steel mills, the steel mills go out of business. There's a huge economic transformation and the mob is able to take advantage of it. Do I have that about right? Well, the mob was always there because there was so much cash generated by the steel mills and the blue collar workers who were making good money in a very dangerous job, like to blow off steam on a Friday night. Gambling became basically every bar, Every pool hall had a table, slot machines. So it was the mob had sort of infiltrated and the mob came from Cleveland and Pittsburgh. There is no Youngstown mob. It was a Cleveland faction and the Pittsburgh faction. And they went to war. When the steel mill started to close, that's when it, the wars started to get more violent because the territory became more dear. And of course, you know, they're competing over a limited amount of steel workers at less mills and it gets more and more violent. And the, in addition to the violence, the corruption of, uh, of Youngstown officials was uh, was rampant. What did you find in putting the putting the podcast together about Youngstown? What jumped out to you, or what surprised you? Everything surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'd done Providence, Rhode Island, which had a history of corruption, but nothing compared to this. You know, the sheriff was always owned by the mob. You know, the mayor was always owned by the mob. Uh, judges, you know, they they one of the mob bosses later on would make money by fixing cases for drug dealers. That's how that's how powerful they were. He had in his pocket the county prosecutor. I mean, the town was wide open, completely wide open. And in the midst of all of this, uh, in the 1990s, emerges this football, former football starting James Traffican. Some of us who covered Washington for a long time remember him as perhaps one of the most colorful members that the US House has ever seen. He used to end a lot of his speeches with, beam me up, Scotty. And he had this wild sort of buffet of hair. Um, why was it that despite his being so seemingly crazy to the rest of us, the folks of Youngstown loved him so much? Well, he was an advocate for Youngstown. When the federal government had forgotten Youngstown, the steel mills have had had left. You know, they the people of Youngstown felt betrayed. You know, they had a good living, they had a good life, and suddenly there was nothing there. There was no jobs, families were broken apart. Uh, you know, it was a really, really rough town for blue collar workers in Youngstown. And here comes James Trafficking, ex football hero, drug counselor, you know, running for sheriff. Um, and he he was their hero, you know, and the more crazy he was, 
you know, the more he sort of resonated with the people there, you know, because he was advocating some extreme points of view on immigration, things that we hear now all the time, you know, lock up our borders, you know, things like that, that were, you know, tariffs against foreign steel, things that were uh, that were back then you didn't hear about, but now you hear all the time. There was some suspicion back in the 80s and 90s and until James Trafficking essentially went out of Congress that he was he was corrupted by the mob. Uh, do you have a point of view on I, that? I don't think it's suspicion. You have to listen to the podcast, but um, he was caught on a tape uh, taking, admitting to taking bribes from the mob put on trial. And this is the power of his relationship with Youngstown. He got, he made a motion, the trial was in Cleveland. He made a motion for some members of the trial, six members of the trial to be from Youngstown and won that motion. So there were six Youngstown people on the uh, on the on the jury. And he got off, you know, with this tape, which they played in the courtroom. And the irony was James Trafficking, I mean, he emerged essentially on the scene as sheriff, pledging to clean up the corruption and the mob that was in Youngstown. He cut it kind of tight. You know, he was already in the pocket of the mob. He had already taken their money. He was really cleaning up the drug dealers. You know, he never really went after the mob. And as he went on and on in Congress and time went on, they, you know, they eventually got him on corruption charges. In the in you know twenty years later, you know he did eight terms and then he finally fell. As we mentioned, um, you did uh, Crime Town, which was the um, the podcast that came out in 2016, focusing on Detroit and Providence. Uh, uh, you had a pretty good run with that. Have you found similarities between Detroit, Providence, and Youngstown? Something that sort of uh, binds them all together regarding yes. crime and corruption. This is going to sound like something we all know, but when you take people's jobs away. When they don't have a way to support themselves, your community crumbles. And as your community crumbles, crime rises. Crime for desperation, drugs, but also organized crime. You know, it becomes the only employer in town. You know, and and you know they and organized criminals, the mafia can t- takes advantage of those situations. And yet the mafia, the mob, the corruption, they can still, I mean, with the example of Providence, there's been a major refurbishing of Providence over the last 10 or 12 years. You go to downtown Providence now with the sort of walk through by the river and the sort of the parks and you'd never know that this was, we used to be one of the most corrupt cities in America. So it almost suggests that, well, despite all of the corruption of the local politicians, there's still some sort of balance sometimes between the mob and the political folks that they influence in terms of getting things done for their cities. Well, the mob infiltrated the unions. And the unions, particularly the laborers union, the Teamsters unions, they are, you know, I think they're cleaned up now. But for a long time, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, they were, they were in the rackets. So you would have all these, these, uh, these businesses that had to deal with corrupt union officials. Unions can get a lot of votes out for politicians, so they had a lot of power in the political structure. So it's like a disease, you know, it sort of infiltrates all aspects of society. I've always, I mean, I love listening to podcasts. And as somebody who was, you know, started off, you know, as a broadcaster, the whole sort of medium fascinates me because whenever somebody, a journalist puts together a story, there's a certain amount of time you put towards the, the research and the reporting and talking to people. And then there's a certain amount of time you have to put towards the assembling of your story of sort of crafting the TV package or crafting the radio podcast, whatever it is. How do you split your time? I mean, I wonder if you can give us a breakdown. How much time do you spend actually just sort of doing the research and the legwork in Youngstown? And then how much of the time for this podcast was spent in actual production? Yeah, well, these stories, you know, they're old. So I usually go there early on my own, see who's around, start to, you know, develop sources. 
um, see who's going to talk about things. Also looking for for found footage, you know, whether that's old TV footage like the Youngstown, you know, uh, the Mahoning uh, Valley Historical Society had a cache. Uh, WKBN was really helpful. Uh, those tapes and the court records of trafficking, all that adds so much to the story. That process is a two to three, four month process. And then I add producers for cutting and you know we start to put the thing together. Um, and that takes another six to eight months for 15 to 20 episodes. You know, So you're basically a, a month an episode. Wow. And the, and the scripting process, is it constantly changing that, you know, for example, a lot of people that will script something out, they make a rough cut and then they realize, oh no, we need a little more of the, the audio tape here. We need a little more of the, the news actuality there. Yeah, well, especially for this these stories, because the characters we're trying to find are characters who touch multiple parts of the story. You know, the mobsters who lasted a long time, who rise and fall. It's very like Fargo, the TV series, you know? <laughs> So you're you're constantly finding out new stuff and saying, oh, this guy actually touched this part of the story. We got to get him back in the story. So you're we will do you know, we've done 50, 60 iterations before we lock an episode. Was it very difficult finding people to, to talk about this in Youngstown? Um, most people with these stories are far enough away from it now. Mm-hmm. So they they've either talked about it already. Uh, or they're kind of ready to talk about it. I mean, I always tell my producers, everybody wants to tell their story. At some point, if you live a life, you want to talk about it. And you got to kind of be there to catch that ball when it when it's pitched. So, you know, that's a lot of the job is finding stories where people are still alive, but it's far enough in the distance so they don't feel like they're at a liability to talk about it. Um, and then there's people who are never going to talk about it. The mob boss in Youngstown who I met, Lenny Strollo, um, you know, he was kind of back and forth with me for a couple months. I met him a couple times. He was 92, very, mm-hmm. very spry in in his lawyer's office. And I, I think he was kind of playing with me a little bit. But uh, he unfortunately died before we ever came to some sort of, you know, conclusion. But, you know, there, there are people that will never tell you their story. So you have to find court records. There, you know, the amazing thing is transcripts of testimony. Testimonies are recorded. You know, they're just like interviews, you know, so you can use those testimonies, you can use those transcripts and use actors to bring things back to life. Do you have a favorite episode and perhaps even a favorite character uh, in the podcast you put together? I mean, when when traffic goes to trial for taking money from the mob as sheriff of Mahoning County, it's kind of the most amazing story because it's so overwhelmingly obvious what's going on and he's such an amazing character. And we found such great tape of him talking about stuff, you know? So, and like doing press, con- he did a press conference every day, you know? So he's, he really comes alive. I love that episode, but there's so many, I gotta tell you, there's a, there's a lot, David, there's a lot of stories that are really great. And Mark, where can people, where can people find the podcast? Anywhere, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, you can binge it ad free. Um, if you want to pay a little bit of money, you can hear it for free if you don't mind a couple ads. Um, you know, it's out there. It's dropping once a week, Sunday night, midnight. So once a week, you can, if you're up at midnight on Sunday, you can listen to it. The podcast is Crooked City, Youngstown, Ohio. It is by acclaimed filmmaker and host, Mark Smerling. Uh, Mark, uh, thanks so much for doing this, and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. You got it. And then we'll do an edition of the conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, Craig Lowry, Gina Kim, and the entire gang at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster.
Thanks for watching.